you know, my, my kids would go, we'd, we'd go to watch the Rochester Red Wings, you know, my son Todd in particular, I remember, we'd go watch the Rochester Red Wings, and he would be so excited to be, go to the ballpark and see the team, he loved baseball, and this was at the time when he was in T-ball, really way down there. And uh, he would love, he loved baseball. So him and Toby and I would, we'd go to the ballpark to, to watch the baseball game. And we would get there, he'd be all totally pumped up. But by about the third inning, the game was over for him. You know what I'm saying? He was excited, but now he was like bored out of his mind. He was like, whoa, you know, it's, uh, this is so slow, this thing. And children are like that. They're up and down. Something gets started, and they're all excited about it, you know, and then it doesn't quite happen the way they want, or things don't quite go the way they want, and they can go down very easy. Another thing we see about children in your notes there is children are impatient. They, they're impatient. They jump into a new activity, but then become impatient when it doesn't work out the way they like. I can remember actually a moment in kindergarten where I demonstrated this quality. Um, the the, uh, the uh, teacher said, uh, the teacher said, we're going to do finger painting. I thought, awesome. We didn't do finger painting at my house. We didn't do much of anything at my house. But So we're going to do finger painting. So, and I had, as soon as she said, we're going to do finger painting, my little five-year-old brain, I immediately had in my mind what I wanted to do. And that was I wanted to paint Zorro. Now, you probably don't even, do you even know who Zorro is, right? Yes, okay, all right, good. So Zorro, these, these superheroes, they endure through time. So, so Zorro, you know, and I, and I actually had an image in my mind. I wanted to paint Zorro leaping off of a balcony onto his horse. Finger painting, finger painting. And so, I, so they gave me the paints all in front of me, and they gave me this big white piece of paper, and, and I had in my mind the picture that I wanted. I wanted to see Zorro leap off of the, uh, of the balcony onto his horse, you know, and I started trying to paint. Now, it was just, I don't know how to describe it to you, but I put my hand, and I had an image in my mind, I put my, and I just was like a big kind of black blob, you know, the whole thing. It was just kind of a big, blah, 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 you know, kind of a thing. And after doing that for a little bit, I got really, you know, I was like, what is, there's something wrong with this paint? You know what I mean? The, the paper, that's, it was just, I just thought, this is just terrible. I didn't enjoy it at all. Totally impatient. That's the way children are. They're impatient. Another thing we see about children is children hate pain. Children hate pain. It doesn't matter that it, the pain might be to help them or anything like that. I remember, I remember when uh, Toby was a little guy, he was like maybe four years old, we used to have to bring him in, and they, they, because of some medical thing, they, they needed to prick his finger. You ever have that done when you were a kid? Prick your finger to get a little bit of blood for something, right? And so they wanted to prick his finger, right? And uh, so he went the first time they did it. It was like something they had to do every few months. Well, the first time he went, you know, and he was like, oh, you know, we're going to prick your finger. Oh, you know. and, and then they pricked his finger, and he was like, ah! you know, it was like a total freak out. You know, what, what, what have you done to me? Well, the next time my wife, because I, 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 I remember this vividly because I got a call uh, from my wife saying, I don't know what to do. Because the next time she went to have this done, Toby had on a pair of overhauls, you know, bib overhauls. And he got there, and they said, we're going to prick your finger. And he took his hands, and he shoved them down into the, those bib overhauls, you know. And there was like, no way you were getting his hand out of there. 
you know, he didn't, it didn't matter to him that it was for health purposes. It didn't matter to him that it would make him feel better ultimately when he got healed of his sick. It didn't matter. None of that mattered to him. He hated pain, any kind of pain, right? He didn't want that pain touching him in that way. And so children are like that. Children hate pain. Another thing you can see about children is children are self-centered. Children see everything from the framework of how it affects them. They're not concerned with others. If you've ever been in charge of a little one, you know, and, and you've, they're doing something fun, maybe over somebody's house or something like this, and you said to them, okay, we're going to leave. We have to leave now. They don't care that you have an appointment you have to go to. They don't care that there's other things that have to happen that day, that maybe you're making the food for somebody else. and They, they don't care about any of that. They are happy right now, and they do not want to move from that spot. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And it's like, ah, you know, boom, down on the floor, go limp, you know, like they're a protester, you know, or something, you know, and you, you have to drag them out of the, out of the, the, the situation. Children are like that. They're, they're self-centered. They don't, they're, they're not thinking about how this impacts you. Oh, mom, is this, is this messing up your time? Oh, I'm sorry. It, forget that. They are immature, and they are only thinking about how it impacts them. They're only thinking about them themselves. And then another thing we can see about children is children can be mean to other children. How many of you found that out to be the true case? Children can be, maybe some of you still are stinging from some of the mean things that touched your life on the, uh, you know, in the playground or the, or the classroom or whatever. Children can be mean to other children. So here we see a beautiful picture of what immaturity looks like, right? They're up and down. They're impatient. They hate pain, right? They're self-centered. They're not looking at the bigger picture at all, anything like that. And sometimes they can be very mean to other children. Now, of course, you know, you, you came here to Elam because you wanted to grow. Well, this is what you're growing out of, right? But probably if you need to grow some of these characteristics I'm talking about, you should be feeling a little uncomfortable and, and feeling like, whoa, you know, maybe you're a new student, you're thinking to yourself, this is my first day here, and they're like after me already, you know what I mean? What's the, you know, you, you should be feeling a little something like, wow, I recognize some of myself in this uh, situation. So what is spiritual maturity in your notes? Okay, so we, we, we need to define that if we're going to talk about growing and you want to get somewhere, you know, the very first thing you need to do if you want to get somewhere is you need to define where it is you're wanting to go. So what is spiritual maturity? And here it says this, is, uh, is spiritual maturity measured by what we know? That is, some people think spiritual maturity has to, it has to do with the accumulation of knowledge and information. As a matter of fact, you're here at Bible school, you're thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm reading through the Bible and I'm studying theology and I'm, I'm, I'm in all these different things. This must mean that I'm growing. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. 1 Corinthians 8.1, it says, Now concerning, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Look what he says. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. The accumulation of knowledge does not... You can be a completely immature person 
and have accumulated a tremendous amount of knowledge. It doesn't mean you're growing uh, in terms of your spiritual maturity. I remember one of them, a very good friend of mine was uh, he memorized tremendous portions of the Bible. He was, you know, he was a person who could just repeat verses to you, you know, one after another, memorized tremendous portions of the Bible and had a tremendous battle with pornography in his life such that it actually derailed him and his ministry. So, so here was a guy who, from a knowledge perspective, he could probably put almost anybody in this room to shame, including professors and everything else, in terms of not, he knew he had memorized great portions of the Bible. But the reality was there was still something very hurting inside of him. Okay, here's another one. Here's another one. Is spiritual maturity measured by the miracles we do? Or maybe a, another way of saying it is by, you know, the, the spiritual results we seem to have. We pray for people and they're healed and these kinds of things. Okay, this is what the Bible says. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I Never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow, are you serious? Yes, I am serious. The reality is that miracles and spiritual impact like that has nothing to do with your maturity. That's an amazing thing about God is that God will take a person who is, you know, sometimes people see it as a justification. They look at themselves and they say, well, well, I must be okay because if the Lord healed that person when I prayed for them, even though, you know, I think I'm, uh, some people might think I'm, I'm messed up here, if they pray, then it shows that I am, I'm mature. And as a matter of fact, my opinions probably are better than the opinions of another person who didn't get the same results that I got because I'm a m- mature person. It shows I'm, I'm a mature person in that way. But you know, the reality is the Bible is very, very clear that miracles and signs and wonders, that God will take a person who is just, it's amazing. He'll take a person that is all messed up and he will move through them. Uh, A few years ago, I remember uh, down in Florida, there was a guy that was all at once, man, he was like, it was like an explosion. And uh, all kinds of people were being healed and all kinds of miracles were happening. People were traveling from all over the place down to Clearwater in that area so that they could go to this guy's meetings. But other people who looked at it said there's something quite not quite right. There's something about the way the guy presents himself, something about the things that he's doing. They're not quite right. And so there was a question, you know, people were going, don't you see the miracles? And other people were going, something is not quite there. And then it wasn't even, I don't know, six months or something like this. And all once it came out that he was cheating on his wife uh, in the situation. And so, he, you know, he, so, so we look and we say, well, if, if, if we're experiencing miracles, then that shows we're mature. No, that doesn't, that doesn't show spiritual maturity either. How about this one? Is spiritual maturity measured by what we say? What comes out of our mouth? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who's got the right words, the smooth talk, uh, you know, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. 
See, it's not the person who's got the talk. You know, some people got the talk. You know, they just, they know how to put it out there. They've, they've got the words, you know. They know how to express things in certain ways. Wow, isn't that guy a great speaker? He's such a great communicator. Boy, I mean, he just, he just brings it home so clear. Isn't it awesome? Does that show that he's a spiritually mature person? No. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But what? He who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Spiritual maturity, in your notes, this, this is there. Spiritual maturity is reflected in how we live our lives. Do we do the will of God? That's what determines whether or not you're spiritually mature. It's none of these other, other issues that we so easily gravitate toward. It's not the, the question is, did you do God's will? The question is, are you doing what God told you to do? That's what determines your maturity. It's not all these other issues that are there it, it, and your growing spirituality. is. are you doing it? I, I put down in my notes to myself, I said, it doesn't matter how high you jump. The question is how you live when you come down. You know, sometimes we'd have revivals where people would be leaping and dancing and jumping around. and They'd be laughing, crying, falling. Listen. None of that matters. The thing that matters is when the meeting is over with and you step out onto that turf out there, what kind of life do you actually live? Right? What kind of life do you actually live? That's what determines our maturity. Not everyone who says to me, not everybody who does a miracle, prophesies to me, not everybody uh, who has knowledge. No, it's the person who does the will of my Father. That's the, it doesn't matter how high you jump. The question is how you live when you come down. Now, we're not talking about how we become Christians. We're talking about the evidence of our growth. So let's look at this uh, just going on in our notes. Who is James, okay? So we're going to read this book of James. We're going to take time this semester. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Think about that for a second. Just think about that. Any of you have half-brothers and sisters in your family? Okay, me too. Okay. James was the half-brother of Jesus. James didn't know Jesus just when he started doing all his miracles when he was 30 years old. James knew Jesus when he was seven years old. Are you with me? James was not an easy guy to impress, okay? Uh, in your notes it says he was not, even at that age, he was not dazzled by Jesus. Uh, in one place in the book of John it says this, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Okay, so, 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 so Jesus grows up, mo starts moving into his calling, and James is sitting back going, I don't think so. I remember you, booger nose. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's looking at Jesus going, you know, I, I remember you when I had to change your diapers, you know, that kind of thing. See, he's thinking in that kind of way. I remember you when you were struggling. You didn't have everything together, right? And, he, and, and so he's not dazzled by Jesus. Uh, it says here, for not even his brothers were believing him. Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says, when he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, right? James was a leader in the Jerusalem church. 
It says, uh, so, so after he believes, after he comes to the place of believing, he comes on very strong, and he becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem, this younger brother of Jesus. When the apostles and elders gathered to give direction to the Gentiles, James was their spokesman. So, you know, he, he, he comes on, once he comes on, he comes on strong. And then tradition tells us that James was actually martyred by the Jews. He was thrown down from the temple and then beaten to death while he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, just like his, his older brother did. So, so th- this is this picture of James. So, you know, one of the things you've got to get a hold of about James when you read the whole book of James is to realize this guy grew up with Jesus. He is not, um, he's not awed by your spirituality. You know, you come on with smooth talk, and he looks at you and says, I grew up with the smoothest talking guy around, you know. You think you got your wisdom. He goes, I grew up with the wisdom. You know. So he's not, this guy is not impressed, right? He's not impressed. And that's why he's, he cuts through all this baloney. That's the thing you'll see him do all, that he cuts through all the baloney. And he says, look, the question is this. How do you live your life? Not do you, you know, know all these fancy things and do all, how do you live your life. Uh, when you look at the very beginning of the book of James, James chapter 1, verse 1, if you've got your, your Bible there, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't list out all of his qualifications. He doesn't, he doesn't care about any of that stuff. He says, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Right to the point. He's a very direct guy, totally unimpressed with titles, though he himself was a bishop in the Jerusalem church. He's writing to the Jewish believers who have been dispersed by the persecution. Do you remember that in Acts chapter 8? When uh, Stephen gets stoned and it says, On that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And So he's, he's writing now to these guys who have been scattered all over the place. And so James starts out trying to teach us the facts of life. And that's what we're going to talk about in the rest of the time we have this morning. James's first words to us, he's trying to give us the facts of life. James's, James chapter 1, starting with verse 2 through 4, he says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This is, I mean, this is verse 2. The guy is like getting into it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, so James is trying to give us the facts of life. And he starts out with this fact. Number one, problems are inevitable. Problems are inevitable. He doesn't say if you encounter various trials. He says when you encounter various trials. It is going to happen to you. Jesus said in the world you will have tribulation. Look at these verses that I've listed out for you. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Uh, Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
Uh, Acts 14, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Problems are inevitable. If you, you know, you're one of these, you're like Toby, you want to avoid pain. And I know I've interacted with some of you. There's no question you have your, your hands, you know, down the front of your bib. You are not getting your finger pricked no matter what happens. You are going to protect yourself from all pain. You're not going to allow that to happen, not, not allow it to deal with you in that way. And he just says to you, hey, you got to, listen, you want some of the facts of life? You want some of the facts of life here at Elam? Problems are inevitable. It's when you encounter various trials, not if you encounter these trials. And then the second thing he says here, too, is problems are unpredictable. He uses that word, he says, when you encounter. And that, that, um, that word encounter means to fall into. This is the same word that's used to describe the Good Samaritan story when it says he encountered basically robbers. Uh, he fell into the robbers' hands is the way it says it. He fell. It's that same idea. Problems are unpredictable. What I mean is that you fall into problems sometimes. Sometimes the robbers are waiting for you. The problems are waiting for you. And these problems, you fall into them. It's not something that you planned for. It's not something that you organized for. It's not something that you prepared for. But all at once, you fell into the robber's hands. You encountered various trials. It's unpredictable when it's going to happen. Ephesians talks about it. Says, it's, it uses this expression in Ephesians. He says, he says, stand in the evil day. What is the evil day? The evil day is this. The unexpected day of the devil's attack. He says, you got to, in Ephesians, he says, put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand in the evil day. So what is the evil day? It's the unexpected day of the devil's attack. You didn't get up that morning saying the devil's going to attack me today. You didn't know it was the evil day. Some of you experienced the evil day over Christmas break. You know, something, once you encountered something, maybe it was a, a temptation. You know, some old friends reached out to you and, hey, you're home for break. Come on, let's, let's do this, let's do that. And you were kind of bored and in between things. And you didn't know anybody was going to call you that day. You didn't need, know what was going to happen. But you, you fell into the robber's hands. You encountered various trials. And maybe you didn't make such a great decision. Some of you had things happen during this break. Maybe there was, you found yourself facing a financial crisis. Certain things you thought were going to be, were all taken care of, and this was going to happen in this way, and this was going to happen in that way, and, and bam, all at once you experienced the unexpected day of the devil's attack. It was unexpected. It was the evil day. He says, I'm trying to prepare you in Ephesians. He says, I'm trying to prepare you. I'm trying to get the armor of God in you. Why? So that you can stand in the evil day, the unexpected day of the devil's attack. You know, maybe you got the word, you know, your older brother or sister who got married would only been a, a year, year and a half ago, and all at once your parents sat you down and said, it looks like it's not working out. And you were like, whoa, what? Are you kidding the unexpected day of the devil's attack. See? 
And that's what, that, that's what James is telling you right now. He says, look, these problems, they are, un-, he says, not only are they inevitable, they are unpredictable. You never know when it's going to happen. And I want you fall into the attack. And then the third thing he says is this. He says, problems are diverse. He says, you have various, right? When you encounter various kinds of trials, various, uh, the idea of it is multicolored, custom-made, right? It's not, it, it, you're, it's a great picture, isn't it? Your trials are not bought off the rack. They have been custom-made just for you. You encounter various kinds of trials, right? It's not like you say, oh, I'm just getting a trial like everybody else's trial. Your trial is never like everybody else's trial. The devil knows what will push your buttons. And he will do custom-made problems that will push your buttons. And they'll touch the areas that you're most sensitive to. Maybe it'll be relational issues. Maybe it'll be financial issues. Maybe it'll be health issues. Whatever it is, the problems, they are many and varied. Temptations, battles, all kinds of things. Uh, some, Some of you, your computers are a problem. Some of you, the game thing's gone crazy in your life, and you, you just don't know how to focus in. And you know, it, 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 there are many different kinds of problems. They are custom made for you. Custom made problems to take you out. Because the last thing in the world that, that the devil wants is for you to come here, somehow get empowered, somehow get faith beyond what you've known before, somehow get a sense of destiny that you have, you've been born for a purpose and that you have a mission and a calling and making it. The last thing in the world he wants for you to do is to come with that kind of thing. And so he has put together some inevitable, unpredictable, multicolored, custom-made problems to try and take you out. Number four, James tells us, okay, he says, we're just, this is the facts of life, guys. We've got to start out understanding the facts of life before we can talk about anything else. He says, number four, problems are purposeful, purposeful. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. He says, you know, all these various multicolored problems, they're all coming after you, he says, but he says, God has a purpose. He will take those that, just like the pricking of the finger for little Toby had a purpose, he will take the pain, he will take the scars, he will take the tears, and he will use them to produce inside of you endurance, the ability to get up and keep on going. I don't know if you're like me. I mean, I remember, you know, as a kid, you know, Something would come against me, and that was it. I was done. Boom. You know, they gave me an assignment in school. I looked at it. It's hard. Right? I can't do this. Right? How am I going to learn that? I don't know. Just, I had no, I had no endurance, right? Don't, you don't want to be around me now, though. After 60 years, 
you know, of, of and, and many of those years following the Lord and serving the Lord since I've been 17 years old and at le- leading organizations and leading things and stuff like that. Now I think to myself, sometimes I look in the mirror and I said, you should just fall down because they already shot you. You're dead, you know. But no, I'm not quitting. I am staying in it. I am fighting. Well, that kind of thing, that doesn't come to you by, uh, by uh, all the good successes that have happened. That comes to you when you've been kicked unexpectedly and you're down on your knees and you're going, what in the world? And, and, you, and, and, and you say, can I just get up tomorrow? I remember having problems when I was pastor of the church where I, I would say to my wife, I'd say, honey, I'm just going to go and sit in my office. The office had a little window in the thing. And I, I couldn't, I was so discouraged, I couldn't even do anything. I just said, if I just can get in there and sit there, when people walk by the window, they look in and they see me and they go, well, I guess everything's okay. He showed up again, you know. Even though there were problems going on, you know, apparently it's okay. We're, we must be all right. He, he's still in there, right? He's still showing up, see. That's what God's wanting to build in you. He's wanting to build endurance. You're not swept away by every little bit of opposition that comes your way, but you learn like the eagle learns that it's the wind that blows against you that enables you as he spreads his wings to rise higher and higher and higher and higher. See? God wants to give you eagle's wings so you're not blown down by the opposition. You're lifted up by the opposition. You go higher. He says, he says you got to get a hold of this. Uh, yeah, there are problems there, and they're unpredictable, and they're diverse. He says, but they have a purpose, and their purpose, he says, is to produce endurance. And then he says, when you have that endurance, he says, it actually goes on and produces some other things. Problems develop my character so that I can become mature. Endurance is keeping on. The result is maturity. What does he say? When you become mature, you are perfect, you are complete, you are lacking in nothing. Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, another thing we see about problems is, is problems, he tells us this too, purify my faith. Problems purify my faith. You know, there are two kinds of tests. He says you're being tested. You're you're tested by these problems. There are two kinds of tests. One is like a pass-fail exam. Many of you will take that kind of test while you're here at school. But that's not the kind of test he's talking about here. When he uses the word test here, he means to refine. When it says that the steel has been tested by heat or tested by pressure, so that it becomes refined. When it says that the gold has been taken and there's been tremendous heat applied to the gold and the impurities have risen out of the gold and been removed. See, that's what he's talking about when he talks about your problems will purify my faith. My problems, they test me. The testing of you, count it all joy, he says. You can only count it joy if you understand endurance, that you're, you're, this is what, you're getting a byproduct from what you're going through. You're getting endurance, and when dur- endurance has its perfect work, you're going to be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. As a matter of fact, your faith is going to be refined and purified. In your notes, I put this little quote, quote, it said this, Christians are like tea bags. You find out what's in the bag by putting it in hot water. Christians are like tea bags, right? Listen to me. Elam is hot water. 
I was joking when I was talking to the, to the new students coming in on Saturday. I said, they never let me talk to anybody before they actually get here. I, because, they, because this is what I would tell them. Elam is hot water. When you signed up for Elam, you signed up for hot water. And you are, you know, you are dropped into the hot water. And whatever is in you, whatever is in you comes out. And, you know, this is one of the things that makes it so hard. Those of you that are new students, one of the things that makes it so hard is when that stuff starts coming out because you think you're better than you are. And when that stuff starts coming out, you look at yourself and you go, what kind of... I, I mean, I can remember very distinctly thinking to myself after, after finishing my, um, my third semester... As a matter of fact, I left without, I'll tell you the story sometime of how I ended up coming back. But when I finished my third semester, I left with the complete intention not to come back. And I can remember what was in my mind, and it was very, very clear, the thought that was in my mind. I said, I don't know about the rest of these people. They all seemed like they were able to get along. But I am totally messed up. And God may want to have ministers come out of this place and people who are prepared to be used by God. But It can't be me because I have so many faults and so many failures and they've become so clear to me. And why was that? It was because of a year and a half in hot water. And the stuff that was coming out of me, I could not stand. And I can remember I came back for prayer week. You know, we got prayer week next week. I came back. I'll tell you sometime the miracle story of how I ended up coming back. I come back for prayer week. And in that prayer week, I experienced, I can only describe it as a resurrection experience the whole rest of my experience at Elam it was like the first year and a half of being here was like down it was like I came here to get better and I just felt like all I got was worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and then during that prayer week something exploded in my life and I I experienced the grace and the power of God and the love of God and something happened inside of me and from that week that prayer week on my life took a whole different turn and a whole different direction. Pain is required for growth. In the Jewish rabbinical tradition, a story is told where a student goes to the rabbi and he says to him, Rabbi, he says, why does the Bible say that God's law is written on our hearts? He says, doesn't it seem that God should write his law in our hearts? Why does it say it's written on our hearts? And the rabbi hesitated for a moment and then he said this to him. He said, it's because when your heart is broken, it will all fall into your heart. Right? When your heart is broken, it will all fall into your heart. Some of you have spent your whole lives, your short lives, up to this point, doing everything you can not to have your heart broken. But it's only when we surrender to God, it's only when we face what he's really doing in our lives, it's only when we open up in that, our heart is broken. And then all these things he's wanted to do inside of us begin to flow into us. Faith, in your notes it says, is always tested. Faith is always tested. You know, when they 
would make a, a pot. They would take the pot and they would, they would form it from the clay and then they would fire it, put it into the, to the oven and fire it up. And the way they would check whether or not it was, had, had gone through enough heat was they would take the pot back out again and they would thump it. And if it had gone through enough heat, when they thumped it, it would ring. Ding, ding. But if it had not gone through enough heat, when they thumped it, it would thud, thud, thud. If you see me walking around thumping a few people, okay? Right? I'll go through the, go through the dining hall today and kind of whack a few heads, right? Are we getting a ring or are we getting a thump, Right? Maybe you went home for Christmas break. You know, you thought to yourself, well, man, I can't believe it. Semester at Elam. I have been in it. This has been awesome. I've grown so much. And you went home at Christmas break, and somebody reached up and went, and it didn't go ding. It went thud, thud. You weren't in long enough, you know. You were not in long enough. Thud, thud. It's a simple reality that God must work in us before he works through us. It was 25 years before Abraham had a son from when he got the promise. 13 years before Joseph reached the throne. Moses had 80 years of preparation before 40 years of ministry. And even Jesus had 30 years of prep before three years of ministry. That's what you're here for. That's what you signed on for. God, change me. Make me the person that you want me to be. If you just want to renew that commitment to the Lord right now, I want you just to stand to your feet right where you are. You just want to renew that. You want to say to the Lord, Lord, I give you permission to do whatever you need to do in my life here at Elam. I give you permission to do and, and work. In, I give you permission to use my problem. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have my hands stuck down the front of my bib overhauls. I'm saying to you, use what you have to use. I realize that growth, there's pain involved in growth, and I give you permission to let my life be touched by pain if you will, Lord, cause growth to happen inside of me, change to happen inside of me. Just lift both your hands to the Lord right now if you're standing. Lord, we just are standing before you right now with our hands lifted in humble surrender before you. Lord, we, we recognize that you're wanting to work in our lives so that we can endure the the, the evil day, the unexpected day of the devil's attack. And we give you permission to use whatever you have to use, Lord. Do whatever you have to do. Work inside of our lives to make us those men and women. And Lord, we will not accept a spiritual maturity which is composed of something that isn't reality. We want the real thing happening inside of us. Lord, the next time we go home, and we get thumped, we want to ring. We want to ring, Lord. We don't want to just go thud again. Not, not been in the oven long enough. 
Lord, we thank you for it now. We ask you to work so powerfully, so deeply in our lives this semester, a transforming experience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.